I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent, and Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent. This week, we'll be talking about ethics in banking as the Banking Standards Board in the UK launches its first annual review. We'll also be looking at the latest dire data for European investment banks versus their US peers. And finally, an interview that Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, has done with Jason Schenker, author of a new book on the outlook for recession in the US. First, though, to that topic of ethics in banking all of us, I think, were at various points on Tuesday at the FT Banking Standards Conference, which we put on in conjunction with the UK Banking Standards Board. And it was a day full of talk about conduct and ethics and how banks could improve their image, really. Martin, do you think it was a useful exercise? I thought the conference was great. I thought that one of the most interesting areas was the reaction and early analysis of the new rules that came into force this week, making senior bankers accountable for their area of responsibility and promising to punish them more severely if they are found to have not taken proper precautions in certain areas. Now, this is the senior managers regime, so-called. Let me bring Caroline in here because... At the conference, there was mixed reaction, I think it's fair to say, but there was a fair degree of anecdotal evidence that there's still quite a lot of worry among senior execs about what this means for their personal liabilities. I think that's fair. I think there's been a lot of concern across the city in the run-up to the senior managers regime being introduced. There's concern that their decision-making is going to be second-guessed by the regulator a few years hence, and that risk-taking essentially is not going to be possible anymore. The FCA definitely push hard against that and they say it's not for them to stop risk-taking. What they're interested in doing is examining all the steps senior executives took to reach a particular decision. This interplay between this kind of regulation and the type of ethical conduct or unethical conduct that banks choose to operate by the kind of whole area of culture, as it's loosely defined, was something that the conference focused on. And it's also what the Banking Standards Board is all about. This is a voluntary organisation set up by the banks. And as I said in the introduction, they've just put out an annual review of some of the banks that were those founding members. Martin, it didn't really come to much, did it? That annual report's fairly thin on detail. Yeah, I mean, just to take a step back, this is the body that was set up following recommendations from Sir Richard Lambert, our former editor, who was appointed by half a dozen of the UK's biggest banks and building societies who wanted to come up with some kind of industry-funded body that could look at improving ethics and behaviour and culture um, and come up with some voluntary standards that they could all sign up to and would carry out some kind of monitoring of those standards to see that if they were improving... And so last year was created the Banking Standards Board, chaired by Dame Colette 
Bow, and this week they produced their first annual review, which was pretty light on detail, but this is uh, their first one. It was only with 10 banks. Um, They've now got 31 members, so they say next year their review will be more statistically relevant and there will be more data in it for us to get our teeth into. There were more questions than answers, I found, in the 30 pages that they produced. But to be fair to them, this is the problem, I think, that a lot of people have with this very important issue of banking behaviour, ethics and culture. It's very difficult to measure. I mean, do you measure it by the number of fines that banks pay? Do you measure it by the consumer ratings that each bank has? But you can't just measure it on those two things. There's a lot of intangible things that, uh, you know, about people taking the right decision for the bank, for wider society, for their customers. And it's hard to measure these things. So I think they're promising to do better next year and to come up with more data. But they won't be naming and shaming. And they're very insistent on that because they are ultimately funded by the banks and they rely on the bank's cooperation. And it's up to the banks to publish the results that they will receive. Well, you spoke to, you mentioned Dame Collette, the chairman. You also spoke to Alison Cottrell, the chief executive, and James Bardrick, who's the head of Citigroup's operation in the UK and is also a board member on the Banking Standards Board. You spoke to all three of them around what drove this whole project and what everyone should be able to get out of it. Here's some of the uh, most interesting things they had to say. We went in and had discussions with people working in each of the banks. And they were quite carefully structured discussions, but we were basically sort of testing how people who work in the businesses, how they understand what their boards are doing and how it's working for them. Now, Martin, there's a huge caveat coming up here. We are not pretending that this is a systematic, sector-wide you know, map of the terrain. In the report that goes back to the firm, the aim of this 2016 was to give them more of a sense of, actually, this is where you are relative to your peer group. But that's information which is given to City for it to use and think, what do we need to focus on? Where do we need oh, you to won't invest? That. No. What we will then do is paint a picture of the sector and say the spread of performances across the sector is this. And it's up to City what it does with its information, as with this report. And this is why I think it's different from, say, a think tank or a regulator or whatever. For us... The value of the assessment is that that gives us a much better grip on how the actions we're already taking and in the future the actions that we intend to take will be helping us along that journey and measuring that in an independent way, which is important, but also measuring it in the context of the rest of the industry so that we can take relative assessments as well as uh, as absolute judgments. And in that sense, we had limited expectations of what we knew was going to be a very limited pilot exercise which has as much to do with getting the thing going and you know learning through a pilot which is exactly what it's for. So on to our second topic for the day which is basically yet more evidence that European investment banks are falling behind their US rivals. Laura you've been crunching the numbers from the bank's fourth quarter earnings and you've found out some startling comparisons in terms of both revenues and profits. Yeah, I mean, what we did was we looked at the top five investment banks in Europe and also the top five investment banks in the US. And then we looked at their earnings over the full year 2015. And we found from that that the European banks have gotten much, much smaller. So if you take their investment banking and securities divisions combined, the total revenue of the five European banks is now less than half the total revenue of the five US banks. If you look at it on an earnings basis, 
The comparison is even worse. The top five US banks had earnings of $33.5 billion and in dollar terms, the top five European banks had earnings of $4.2 billion. So you can really see the extent to which the European investment banks have become tiny in comparison to the US competitors. And I guess when this is an industry where economies of scale are very important, it does raise some issues in terms of how much can the European investment banks really do going forward, given that they are so much smaller. And what's at play here? Is it in large part the relative performance of the US economy versus the European economy? So that these banks' domestic markets kind of driving the relative performance? Or is it that the US are actually dominant in Europe now as well? It's a combination of both those factors. So certainly the US on the investment banking side, so we're talking about advising clients, M&A, advising clients on going to raise debt and equity. Certainly that market was a lot more fertile in the US last year. And while the European banks, a number of them do have presences in the US, the US is certainly dominated by the US banks. So when there is a rising tide in the US, it will lift the American investment banks higher. But we are increasingly seeing even the European league tables have come to be really dominated by the US banks. There's a combination of things there. The US banks are putting a lot more capital resources behind their investment banks because they are able to do that. So if you look at the European banks, they've all pulled back the financial resources from their investment banks because they have had to. And that does have a knock-on impact, obviously, on your revenue. So if you're going to reduce the risk-weighted assets in your investment bank overall by 10, 20, 30, 40%, that's obviously going to have an impact. It doesn't feel as if it's the end of this story. We'll keep, obviously, a close eye on that over the coming months and years. Thanks for that, Laura. Let's go to our final topic, where Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, has been interviewing Jason Schenker, who's author of Recession Proof, How to Survive and Thrive in an Economic Downturn. And Ben asked Jason what he thought was the biggest risk to the US economy and how the oil price in particular might play out into driving a recession via the banking industry. Well, I think there's a couple things going on. And obviously, the risks and the probabilities of a U.S. recession have risen. Oil is a main catalyst that we see as a risk imminently because of the exposure that the financial services sector has to oil and gas in terms of its lending and the amount of bad debt that's in the space. And whenever I talk to banks, which is a lot, they always tell me that uh, they reserved adequately for the oil price. They have massive excess capital to absorb losses. Is that the case or is the damage theoretically bigger than they're making out? Well, I think that even if the banks are able to charge off the losses that are are estimated out there, I think that that's something that would be very unpleasant. It's something that would be, you know, no one wants to (laughs) write things off, charge things off of a a large nature. It's going to affect your valuation. It affects your balance sheets. It'll affect equity prices. It could prove contagious for other sectors as well in equity markets. So I think there's a risk around that. And I would add that, you know, if we look back on November 5th of 2015, when the Fed, the FDIC, and the Office of the Control of the Currency issued a warning around the shared national credits and the amount of bad debt and the percentage of the bad debt that was now allocated to oil and gas, that shows us that that risk isn't just something that I'm perceiving. That was a shot across the bow from the Fed, the OCC, and the FDIC. So your base case is that when the losses start to show up from bad, excessive lending into into the oil and gas sector, other sectors start to suffer. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think you're going to see credit downgrades. You're going to see layoffs. You're going to see some bankruptcies in the space. The contagion is definitely there. I mean, if we think about the last cycle where I was a good credit for housing, it was a consumer credit, right? But, you know, I bought a house, sold a house. When I went to go buy another house, suddenly they put you through the ringer. And that's something that affected the due diligence. And this cycle is more like 
historical cycles other than, say, the Great Depression or the Great Recession that we had in 07 to 09 might be more like what we're seeing in 01 and, and other previous recessions where there was just simply too much lending in a certain space. It becomes some banks, especially regional banks, the commercial loans, they're a bit more overexposed. And then as you see that sector come under pressure and you see losses, then there's an overflow in the same way that you know, now I go through stricter lending process to buy a mortgage, even though I'm a good credit. Other industries could face more due diligence, could face reduced lending because the banks are charging off bad debt in one sector and then that affects their other practices. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin, Laura and Caroline here in the studio, our guests from the Banking Standards Board, and also Ben and his guest, Jason Schenker in the US. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Goodbye.